We're going to actually be in Matthew chapter 28 today, and we'll look at verse 16 through verse 20. Uh, but before we get there, I want to kind of set the stage of where we're at. And, and again, this is the opportunity for us today to, to really answer the question, where is Jesus leading us in 2014? Before we get to Matthew chapter 28 and talk about some of the specific things that I believe that God is calling you and I to embrace this year, is I want you to kind of take a step back and, if, and remember the bigger picture of what's going on. So a number of months ago, we had what was called compass gatherings, which in those gatherings, we had three nights where you can come and I kind of set the overall kind of compass direction that God is giving us. God never gives us a roadmap. He always gives us a compass direction and says, this is the way you're supposed to go. So I kind of laid what that out. And I want you to remind you what that is, because to understand this is not something that's exclusive to New Hope. This is something that God, when God puts out his will, his purpose, his agenda, it's, it's timeless. It doesn't change. It doesn't adjust. The compass direction is still the same. But I, many times, because we can get so bogged down in just day-to-day and just maybe even just our church, we forget about the bigger picture of where all of human history is leading. So the first thing I want to just be reminded of is, in, and I'm not going to have you turn there or read it, but in Revelation chapter 7, verses 7 through 9, there is a picture of the finish line. There is a picture of where all of human history is moving towards and is going to eventually get to. And what you see in those few verses is there's this picture that John, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, writes down that he sees of what a future event is. And it is the throne room of heaven. And it says that around that throne are people from every tongue, tribe, and nation worshiping Jesus forever. That's the finish line. You think, well, that sounds really boring. I have a hard time with 20 minutes on a Sunday morning. To understand the context of worship is not just music. The context of worship is a relationship with God. That the end result of all of human history is that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will stand around that throne and be in a face-to-face relationship with the God of the universe. That's where we're heading. That's pretty exciting. And, th- and that is so important for us to always keep that in mind. That's where God is leading us. That's where this all ends. And so everything has to work backward from that. So if that's the finish line, if that's the goal, then what is the motivation for us to get there? It's this thing called reconciliation. You see, on the bigger picture, understand that you and I, because we are sinners, whether you want to admit it or not, all of us are flawed and we fail. And because of that, that sin puts a huge barrier between us and God. It separates us. So when Jesus came, he came and and lived a perfect life, and then he died on the cross and rose from the dead to break the power of sin and death. And the ultimate result of that is that his purpose was to reconcile us back to God, to bring us who are separated from God back into a relationship with him so that someday we can stand around that throne face to face with God, worshiping forever, because that is what God's desire is for all of us to be together. What was lost in the Garden of Eden which was a face-to-face relationship with God, is what is gained in eternity. And it all comes because God reconciles us back to him through Jesus. That motivates us. How does that motivate us? Because every single person that you encounter who does not know Jesus yet is separated from God. That's sobering. Every person you drive by, your neighbor, your coworker, the students who sit in the class at school who don't know Jesus, they are separated from God. And apart from your influence or your impact in their life to introduce them to who Jesus is so that they may be reconciled back to God, they will remain separated. That should drive us every single day because we're surrounded with people who are separated from God and need to experience the same reconciliation that we have received, Bring back into a relationship with God, which, what, which is the purpose of every human being that's ever lived, is to be in relationship with God. 
So God gives us a purpose. He gives us the goal and the, the, the finish line. He gives us what motivates us is to bring that reconciliation for everybody. That's what he talks about in Corinthians. And Paul writes about that. But then he gives us this beautiful process. And it's this thing called discipleship. It's the process of helping people come to know Jesus and learning what it means to follow him and look like him as they learn to be reconciled back to God. That's what it is. That's why we exist. That's not just why New New Hope exists. That's why the church exists in the world today is to make disciples. And so this morning, I want to take a few moments to talk about what Jesus says in Matthew 28, verse 16 and 20, because it outlines for you and I where we're going, where God's leading us. So if you have your Bibles, let me start in verse 16. And then read to verse 20, and then we'll talk about what this means for us. It says in verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So remember, Jesus had risen from the dead. Now he's seeing his disciples one more time before he's eventually going to go back to heaven. It says, When, he saw him, they, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, when we look at those verses, what I want to take some time to do is there's actually seven commitments that come out of the Great Commission, what we call it, what Jesus is saying, that he calls every person who says yes to following Jesus that you and I have to make a commitment to. It's what he's calling us as a church to make a commitment to this year. Seven things that are outlined that we have to understand. The first one is in the first part of verse 19, and that is this. The first commitment that God's calling us to make is to take God seriously. So in the first part of verse 19, Jesus makes a relatively important statement. He says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. How in the world can Jesus say that? Because he's the only one that has ever walked a planet who has overcome sin and overcome death. The two biggest enemies of all human beings. So therefore, God has given him all power and all authority over everything. There is no person who has more authority. There is no person above him. He is the ultimate authority. So when he says that, he's saying, what I'm about to say next, you should probably listen to. That's my paraphrase of what Jesus is saying. This is relatively important. So when the God of the universe and human flesh says, I have all authority, so listen to what I'm about to say, you and I should probably listen to what he's about to say and take him seriously. Because you've never met a person, although you might think your parent did growing up, you've never met a person that has all authority. Only Jesus does. But there's a challenge with that. Something happens to us over time. We make a commitment to follow Jesus, and there's some kind of desperation in us. There's a passion. So we we really want to obey, and we want to do what Jesus calls us to do. But then over time, we become really good at this thing called Christianity. And we almost become professional. We know how to kind of work the system. And when we get to that point, even though we don't want to and we don't admit it, we really become casual in our obedience. In other words, we really don't take God seriously when he says, this is what you should do. We almost change it and make it kind of optional. Hey, I got my fire insurance. I'm in the door. God forgives me, so I don't really feel like doing it today. And so when it comes to something about what Jesus is going to say, the Great Commission, that's not my responsibility. That's somebody else. That's for the missionary or the pastor or somebody who's called or someone who's more qualified. It's actually for all of us. But you and I have to take a step back and ask the question, am I casual towards what God calls me to in my life or do I take him seriously? Do I really believe this? 
When I was a junior in high school, Friday night, we just finished a basketball game. I was tired. Next morning, I got up and I was working the next day. I worked every weekend when I was in, in high school. And so I know got it, getting up the next morning, I was really tired and I really didn't feel like going to work. And so I thought, I don't have to go to work. I'm tired. They got enough people to cover the shifts for the day. I don't need to go. And that week, my basketball coach had said, hey, we're going to have an open gym on Saturday. So if you want to come, the gym will be open for three or four hours. You can come. We can practice. We'll work on some different things. I'm like, hmm, play basketball or go to work. Well, basketball won. So I got in the car and I drove out to, to my high school and I got in the gym. My coach said, hey, I'm surprised to see you here. And, and I said, yeah, it's great. I got time to be able to do this. And so I hung out for three or four hours playing basketball. had a great time. And then I drove home. And when I drove into the driveway, my dad was standing outside. And he didn't look very happy. So when I drove and I got out of the car, and he says, where have you been? I said, playing basketball. He said, weren't you supposed to work today? I said, well, yeah, but I really didn't feel like working today. He said, oh, that's interesting. He said, not long after you left, I got a call from your boss. He didn't know where you were. You didn't bother to call and tell him that you weren't going to be at work. He said, so I've spent the last four hours driving around the city trying to find you. Not a good day for me, really. And this is what he said. He said, for starters, he said, we're going to go to your work because your boss wants to talk to you. Now, remember, I'm 17 years old and I'm driving. I could drive myself to work. He drove me to work. No more basketball excursions. We're going straight to work. So he could come and sit down in my boss's office and watch him fire me. And so that was the last day I worked at McDonald's. I didn't work at McDonald's after that anymore. I, think, I didn't know if it was a blessing or a curse to get fired from McDonald's. I don't know. Sorry, Ed Wilcox, wherever you are. So it's a great place. But I, I thought, well, that was bad enough, but that wasn't the worst of it. See, because I didn't treat my job with respect. And I didn't treat my basketball coach with respect either. Because when he found out what had happened, when I showed up to school the next Monday, he pulled me aside and said, listen, I heard what happened. You walked into this gym and you gave me the, the kind of assumption that it was okay for you to be here. And it wasn't. We were in the middle of playoffs. He said, this is what we're going to do. He said, every practice this week, you don't suit up. You sweep the gym floor while everybody else is practicing. He said, when we get to our game next Friday night, you're not even suiting up. You're not even playing. You're sitting on the bench. That was about the worst thing. It was worse than losing my job at McDonald's was having my coach say that to me. And from that moment on, something interesting happened. I took my coach and my parents and any job that I had much more seriously. Because I had become so casual and thought, I don't need to do this. See, you and I, even though we don't want to admit it, many times we do that. We're here, we're gonna, we'll hear something from Scripture and we'll go, yeah, you know, that's really important, but I don't think so. I'm going to choose not to do it. God loves me. He's going to forgive me. When the God of the universe and human flesh says, I've been given all power and all authority, whatever he says in the next breath is something that you and I should take, take absolutely seriously. And as the church for thousands of years, we should take what Jesus is about to say seriously, which leads to the action step for us. What I'm going to do with each one of these commitments is highlight for you and I, what does this mean for you and I as a church? So what does it mean for you and I as a church family to take God seriously this way, this, this way for this year? One of the primary areas is that in probably the first couple weeks of February, we're going to fast as a church. That means giving up food, but if you can't give up food, you can give up something else. A few months ago, the leadership, so the church council, staff, and elders, we all fasted and prayed together just to say, okay, God, where are we going? And, and one of the things that came out of that, we felt like there was a sense that we all as a church family need to fast, and the fast is focused on one primary thing. 
we need to fast for the purpose of repentance. Now, I'm not saying I have a list of sins of everything that everyone's done in the church and here's what you're repenting for. But there's something about turning the page on our past that I think is tied to us taking time to listen to what God says to us about our own lives and our church and then repenting, which means turning from that of what we used to be so that we can embrace what God wants us to be. So the first, you'll hear more about the details for the first couple of weeks of February. And then on February 18th, we'll have one gathering in the evening. It's a Tuesday night. We'll gather at 7 o'clock and we'll have a time to pray together and to worship together and then let God do what he wants to do to turn the page for us to help us to move forward. Because it's important. We have to take God seriously in all areas of our life. He loves us and he forgives us, but he also calls us beyond where we're at. Which leads to the second thing as well in verse 19 is another commitment that God's calling us to make is to, to change and shift uh, and understand that it's about movement, not maintenance. Understand. So the first verse 19, Jesus says, Therefore, go. That's extremely important. Jesus looks at the, these, this group of disciples a couple thousand years ago and he says, Your default needs to be go. Why is this important? Because if you go back to verse 16... Is remember what it said? It says, so they are encountering Jesus. It says they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. The word doubt is the same word that is used when Jesus encounters the disciples in the midst of the storm. And they were freaking out. And then he calms the seas and he says, you little faith, why did you doubt? The word doubt actually means indecision or hesitancy. So he says to them, so we always think, wow, you just need to have more faith. No, you need to not hesitate. You need not to be indecisive. And so when Jesus says to these disciples, go, what he's saying is, don't give it a second thought. Don't hesitate. Don't be indecisive, but go. And why would Jesus say that? Why is that so important? Because our default is no. That's our default. As human beings, and even sometimes as followers of Jesus, our default is when we're presented with a challenge and we're presented with an opportunity, we step back and we kind of, let's see, let me kind of do the pros and cons here. Let me see if it works for my schedule. Let me see if I like it. And then I'll determine. So what we're saying is no. But what Jesus is saying is, if you're going to choose to follow me, your default is yes. When it comes to my mission, when it comes to my purpose, you say yes. That's what he was challenging his disciples then to do. That's what he's challenging us to do. Our default needs to change. We're too hesitant. Now hear me. I'm not saying, oh, you're thinking, Pastor John, I already have a really full schedule and my life's so wrong. I can't, I have to say no. In fact, I've learned to say no in my life. That's what I'm talking about because the problem is, is sometimes we fill our lives full of stuff that aren't about what God wants our life to be about. And then we give the proverbial Christian answer, I will pray about it, which sometimes is just a cover for Christian disobedience. It is. Because we know what God has already said, and he's called us for something greater. So maybe we need to let go of some other things so we can say yes to the most important thing. When Jordan was playing basketball in eighth grade, he had a great coach. And one of the things he saw in Jordan is Jordan's a great shooter, great three-point shooter. And so Jordan's primary role was to shoot the ball. But the first few games of the season, Jordan was playing within the flow of the offense. And when he got into the game, he wasn't shooting the ball that much. And so I remember that his coach pulled him aside and, and had this conversation with him. And I could tell, I could see Jordan's body language and what was going on. And he's kind of like, you don't want to get called out by the coach. But the coach pulled him aside and said, Jordan, I need you to understand something. He says, when I put you in the game, there is one primary purpose that you have when you go into the game. And Jordan looks at me and goes, what's that? He said, to shoot the ball. That's the reason you're in the game. 
In other words, what Jordan's coach said to him is he said, anytime you're on the floor, anywhere on the floor, you have the green light to shoot the ball. If you've ever played basketball, you would die to hear a coach say that. I never had a coach say that. I heard a coach say, don't shoot the ball, but I never heard a coach say, shoot the ball. So Jordan learned from that, and in, pre, in, in subsequent games, he started shooting the ball, and he started scoring a lot of points. Because he realized when he went on the floor, he had the green light. In fact, what would disappoint the coach is not to shoot the ball. You and I need to understand. God's default in us is to say, yes. Yes to God's mission. Yes to sacrificing myself to see God's mission ultimately accomplished. Not no. That's what disappoints God is when he says, listen, I have all authority and I want you to go. And you say, well, I'll pray about it. Pray about what? Pray about what God's calling us to think about the finish line so that all people have an opportunity to know Jesus and be reconciled back to God. How can we say no to that? Nothing can be more important in our lives. So what does that look like for us as a church for the next year? It's broadening our understanding to be willing to sacrifice ourselves to go and to go where God wants us to go. So this year, globally, things that we're looking at, we're planning a trip to Brazil next fall. Bob and Debbie Brooks are, are working again with Johnny and Friends to put a team together to work with uh, those who are disabled. And there's opportunity that's open in Brazil. So we're going to put a team together to go to Brazil. We're also going to send another team to Haiti, working with Connect2 Ministries and Greg Barshaw, and partner with churches in Haiti. God's blown things up in Haiti after the earthquake. Literally, literally thousands, if not a million people have come to know Jesus since the earthquake. It's incredible. God's allowing us to have the opportunity. And something that's not Simi Valley, but a little closer to home, is we're actually going to put a team together to send to the Dream Center. Because some of you are thinking, man, Brazil and Haiti, forget about that. In fact, for some of you are thinking, even going to L.A. is a cross-cultural experience for you. <laughs> Seriously. Inner city in the United States is a whole different world. But you may be able to say, you know what, I can give a week to go and serve in my backyard and see what God's doing there and partner there because it's something that God can do here as well. Maybe you're thinking, I can't go for a week. John Looney is working on getting some things where maybe for a day we'll go down and partner with Adopt-A-Block with Dream Center and see what God's doing in inner city Los Angeles because it translates to us. It really does. These are great opportunities we have. And even more locally, we're continuing to build great partnerships with Samaritan Center. I know a lot of you have already gone to trainings there and are serving in different areas and helping to care for people's needs in our city. And you know, on top of that, we're working, trying to work with Apollo High School to, to build a partnership that is beneficial for them and helping students. We're still in the process with doing that. There may be opportunity this year for that. And also a big one that you've heard about is this whole concept of laundry love. Is what we're going to do next Sunday, Saturday morning from 9.30 to noon is we're having a training. And it's the simplest concept that is actually, it's literally caught fire across the country. Which is you go into a laundromat and you basically, all you're doing is paying for somebody's laundry so that you have the opportunity to have a conversation with them. You don't wear New Hope t-shirts. You don't tell them about Jesus. You're just present for God to use you to care for someone's most basic need. There are lots of laundromats in Simi Valley. In fact, after that training, we already have one that's launching. Steve Schmidt is working with uh, Ed and Penny Wilcox, small group or community group, and they're going to be starting in a few weeks in a laundromat. They're going to be doing that consistently to build relationship. And, and this next Saturday, we're partnering with Freedom Church, which has been out in Chatsworth. They've been doing laundry love for a number of years, and they have seen amazing things happen. There are people that came to their church through laundry love who had no idea who Jesus is, come to know Jesus, and now they're serving in laundry love. Because they've seen the transformation in their own lives. 
In fact, Freedom Church, they're going to be doing the training. We're going to be here learning from what they've done so we can apply it to our context. So I tell you, two and a half hours next Saturday morning will be worth your, your time. It doesn't mean that you are signing on the dotted line and you're going to do everything laundry love, but you need to hear the concept and see what it looks like when that is done because it's going to be an opportunity for us to continue to expand to reach people in Simi Valley. Some of you have probably gone to laundromats. Most of us in our church, we, don't, we have our own washer and dryer. Go into a laundromat. There are people that you usually don't cross paths with that need Jesus in our laundromats in our city. So those are opportunities that God's bringing our way. The default has to change. Then the third thing, continue to look in verse 19. And third commitment is to disciple-making and not decision-making. There's a shift. So Jesus says in verse 19, he's calling us to do what? To make disciples, and then he says, baptizing them. Those are some key phrases because you and I need to understand. Making disciples is different than making a decision. And so many times we get the two confused. And that's why when Jesus says making disciples, he says baptizing. That loads, backloads into making disciples that baptizing is something that is not done in someone's mind or in someone's heart, but it's done physically in front of witnesses. Baptism does not save you and I, but it is the confirmation that something has happened inside of us, that we have made a commitment to follow Jesus. The fact that you would be willing to stand before the church in almost your underwear and get dunked in front of everybody and get all wet is some kind of demonstration that something has happened inside of you. And the reason that's so important is because we have, over time in the church, especially in the United States, we have become accustomed to focusing on decisions, not disciples. One of the things that you've probably discovered in me over the last year is that one of the things that I'm convinced of is that God has not called us to have people make decisions in a service. He's called us to make disciples in our lives. That's why when I will do an invitation in our service for people to come to Christ, I don't have people raise their hand. I don't have them look at me. And I do that intentionally because I've been pastoring long enough that I know when I do that, most, 99% of those people will walk out this door thinking, I got my fire insurance. I made my decision. Not realizing that God's not interested in a decision. God is interested in a disciple, which means you make a commitment. That's why he calls us to come and die not to come and raise our hand. Please don't be offended by what I'm saying. But for too long, we focused on decisions, the moment of salvation. We got them saved. And what did we do as churches? We had 100 people get saved last Sunday. What are their names? I don't know. Why? Because they raised their hand and they walked out the door. You and I will know a disciple because we'll know their name. Because we'll follow up with them. That's why you'll hear me say at the end of the service, if you've just made that commitment, tell the person you came with. If you didn't come with anybody, talk to me. I've had a couple people this last year come up to me and say, I am making a commitment to follow Christ. And I know their names. Isn't that amazing? I know who they are. Because that's what God calls us to do, is to make disciples, not to make decisions. The greatest tragedy is for someone to think they know Jesus and discover at the end, all they did was raise their hand in a service. Nothing against crusades, nothing against filling stadiums, but those events do not make disciples. That might be the first step for some people in becoming a disciple, but in our culture, we've conditioned people. And I know people who have made a decision for Christ about 50 times in their life, and churches count them every week. There are churches that will report 1,000 salvations, and the church is 200 people. How is that possible? Because we're not making disciples, which is a lifestyle, which is embracing people, which is knowing people one-on-one. So what does this look like for us as a church? The process of discipleship is done in the context of 
relationship. And that's why we've talked about community groups and the opportunity to connect. So historically, we've done life groups. Great thing. And some of you are thinking, well, community groups, life groups, small groups, who cares? It's just a name. It's going to be the same old thing, just repackaged. Some of you have thought that, which is not true. Because what life groups used to be is start-stop based on, okay, we're going to do this for a season of time and then we're going to relaunch and we're going to try to get more people involved. Community groups are something that's a part of the rhythm of who we are as a church that will not have a start and stop. They will always be. Because we are making a shift. John said it on the video. You heard John Looney. We've said this phrase. We are moving from a church with small groups to a church of small groups. Which means the primary avenue of discipleship, care, prayer, support will be in a community group where you look across the room and you look somebody in the eye and you see what they're dealing with and you pray for them and you care for them and you call them. The primary avenue of care and support in our church cannot be based on the staff. Because what that does is that puts the care of five to six hundred people on a group of eight people. It's not even biblical. Because, by the way, the staff's great and I love them, but they're not that good. Seriously. And that's why it's important. I I think it's great when everyone writes down your prayer request on on your Connect card. But let me tell you something. What's more powerful is when you sit in someone's living room and you say, this is what I'm dealing with. And then the next time you meet, they say, hey, how are you doing in that area? Because they know you. They see you. They can call you. They're They're not looking at a card. It's relational. And that also means you have to be willing to risk more to be able to be vulnerable with other people in a group. But that's where we grow. It's in the context of relationship. Be in those groups, you'll be opportunities to pray and to read through scripture together and be challenged by the word and, and to be encouraging and supporting each other. That's going to be the avenue. In fact, what you're going to find when you call the church or you need help in the church, you'll get help. But one of the first questions you're going to get asked is, what community group are you in? Because they need to know what you're going through because they're going to provide better care than the church structure can ever care. Now, some of you are thinking, wow, I, that's, that's a little too much for me. You know what I'm, I'm telling you right now? I'm just giving you acts. I'm just giving you what the early church did. It's nothing new. This is nothing revolutionary. This is the way they lived life. They lived in relationship. They knew each other and they walked that out. So that's what, one of the avenues. We'll talk about a second avenue uh, for the community groups as well. Okay, I know you're getting a fire hose this morning. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, I wasn't ready for this. So, but here we go. Okay, number four. Fourth commitment. It's a commitment to inclusion, not exclusion. Again, in verse 19, Jesus uses his phrase. Who are we to make disciples of? All nations. Every people group on the planet. All nations means all nations. Cultures, subcultures, language groups, people groups, not nationalities. It's not like, okay, well, we're going to go win China, so we have to get one person in China saved. Okay, they're reached. No. There are literally hundreds of people groups in China that define what the word nation means. So it's understanding that you and I have to know that if the end result and the finish line is what? People from every tongue, tribe, and nation in our face-to-face relationship with God for the rest of eternity, for all of eternity, then if that's the case, that means that now it's not about excluding people, it's about including people. It's about embracing people. Why? Because to this date, even now, there are thousands of people groups in our world who shocked some of us who live in America who've never even heard the name Jesus before. In fact, when they're told who Jesus is, they don't even have a concept. They're completely unreached. 
See, most of us, if you grew up in the United States, you grew, whether you know it or not, you grew up in the gospel. You grew up in a culture that valued Christianity and valued church. Therefore, whether you chose to go to church or reject it, you grew up with access to the gospel. There are literally billions of people in our world that grow up and never have access to the gospel. That's why it's important for us to say, okay, Jesus said all nations. The wonderful thing about where we live is that we live in Southern California. Southern California is one of the most diverse places on the face of the planet. And we get to live here. Seriously, this is crazy. It's wonderful to be in, a, in an area where there are literally, almost, almost, but there's literally thousands of representations of people group from all around the world living within, what, a hundred mile radius in Southern California that you and I can access. It's diverse. We were living in Portland for seven years. They thought they were diverse. They are not diverse, let me tell you. Because they don't have what we have. People flock to California. When people think of the United States, they think of metropolitan areas. And one of the areas they flock to is Los Angeles. Los Angeles is our backyard. But here's the ultimate understanding. Is that there are people who don't know who Jesus is. And until us, New Hope, and the church takes God seriously and starts going after people who have not heard the gospel... They'll remain in that state. They'll remain separated from God. Let me play a, a short video for you that demonstrates just a quick understanding of what unreached people are. Go ahead, let's take a look at this together. Last night I was sitting watching a football game with my family. I was checking my email. And I received the greatest email I've ever received in my life. Some of you are thinking, did I I email Pastor John last night? He's going to talk about me. Sorry, no offense. It's nobody in this church. But let me tell you what I received. I received an email from a gal named Sonia who is from Taiwan. Sonia is someone our family's known for about the last five or six years. She came from Taiwan to attend George Fox University in Newburgh, Oregon. And at the time in our church, we were helping kind of to take in different international students. And so Sonia got connected with Kim's parents. And so she lived with them for a little bit. And we started this relationship. So we kind of, not just Kim's parents, but our whole family kind of adopted Sonia. Sonia had never heard about who Jesus is. Never. Didn't have a context. Didn't even, her parents didn't have any connection with church or God or anything. Taiwan. She didn't have access to that. She was an unreached people. And she came to the United States for an education. And so as a result of that, we began to build a relationship with her. She couldn't speak any English when she first got here. And so we started to build friendships with her. And it was funny that when she would come over to our house, the only kind of point of contact that we could understand was playing we together. So Courtney and Jordan would play we with her. And they would, you know, you could laugh and you didn't have to speak any, you know, you didn't have to speak Chinese. You could just communicate through playing. And so that's kind of the way it started. She started coming to church and she couldn't understand any English. In fact, the only English she could get, up to, get out after service, so she would come to me in broken English and say, Pastor John, you talk too fast. That's what she would say. I can't understand. But over months and then over a year, and about a year and a half, she started to learn more English. She started to understand more. Until one day, through our family and then some other families that have really reached out and really cared for her, she came up to me and she said, I made a commitment to give my life to Jesus. It was the most amazing thing. And I got to baptize her. It was incredible to see that happen in her life. She sends me this email last night. 
She said, I just want you guys to know what's going on in my life. She said, uh, you guys have been gone for a year and we miss you. She goes, but I want you to know I'm back in Taiwan. She said, I didn't want to go back to Taiwan. She goes, I wanted to stay in the United States, but I know. She says, I know now that I'm back in Taiwan, at least for this season, God wants me here. And she wanted to say thank you to us because when she was here, she knew why she came. She came to meet Jesus. And here's a girl who knows Jesus now, and her family doesn't know the Lord. But now she's back in Taiwan, surrounded by people who don't know the Lord, who are unreached from a different culture and a different language. She represents one of the people groups that will stand before the throne someday. And I know there's other people in Taiwan who know Jesus. But that's, that's what this is about. If, if you and I understand, we have the capacity to reach the world. And this is what's beautiful about New Hope. This is something our church has always done. In fact, we'll have another opportunity in, in a few weeks. There's going to be about 10 Japanese students coming. And we've been asked if we would host them. Absolutely yes. In fact, we may have to put them off to the highest bidder because we want to help support them, right? We want them to feel loved. Because, in, do you know in Japan right now, the population that actually knows Jesus is like less than 3%. Because they just don't know. They don't have room for God. But they're coming here. Unreached people. God calls us to reach them. So what does that look like for our church over the next year? Now this all will come in conjunction with our building transition and everything. But eventually what I'm going to start is called Global Prayer Gatherings. And probably every other month or at least every quarter, we will gather as a church, not on a Sunday morning, to pray for the world. And part of the process will not only be praying for the world, but will be understanding and learning about the world. Because whether you and I know it or not, we live in a very sheltered context. Did you know that less than 5% of the world lives like we live? When you drive down the freeway and you see all those people in cars, and you drive up to your house, your apartment, your duplex, 5% of the people in the world live at the level that we live. We live in a bubble. 95% of the world doesn't live like we do. And that's important for us to understand. So in those gatherings, I'll have outside speakers come in to tell us what's going on in the world. So that God will give us heart for the world that we live in. So that when you and I turn on the TV and you see a news report about something that happens in the, in the other part of the world, your only clue is not going to be what happened, how does this affect the United States, or how many lives were lost of U.S. citizens. Your heart will break when you hear of something happening that has nothing to do with our country because it has to do with the world that God loves dearly. That's what we should be about. We love the world because God loves the world. And we want to reach un people, un people, or unreached people. My ultimate goal, my ultimate goal for our church is that someday you and I will be able to stand in eternity in the throne room of God, worshiping Jesus, and look across that room and see the face of a person from an unreached people group who's standing there because centuries before, you and I made a decision to give, to go, to pray, to reach an unreached people group. I don't know what that is, but I would love to adopt a people group that someday they're standing before the throne. Why? Because we made a decision to go after them. Would that be absolutely amazing or I am the only one excited this morning? I mean, literally, that's what eternity is about. That's what an eternal reward looks like. It comes in people and their eternity with God, being in the context that God created them to be in. And then next thing is going on, number five, the fifth commitment, is a commitment to transformation, not information. So verse 20, Jesus goes on and he says, so he says to go and to make disciples, and he says, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Teaching them to obey, to understand it in a way that they obey. 
So what Jesus is saying is so important because we need to look at the way that Jesus taught people. See, when we, when we see the word teach, you know what I de- what's our default? A classroom. We just need to teach them. We just need to get people into some kind of classroom to give them information about God so that they know who God is, they know who Jesus is, and they can memorize verses. And they can. Those things are important. But when Jesus said teach, he had a different meaning than what we have. Because the only way you can teach somebody to obey is through action, not just through knowledge and information. Read through the Gospels and look how Jesus did his teaching. He demonstrated with his 12, day in and day out, what it means to have a relationship with the God of the universe, to be one with the Father. He demonstrated that in the way he spoke, the way he acted, the miracles he performed. He demonstrated that. And so there are moments when Jesus has these dialogues and these, these teachings with other people that his disciples get to hear on. But that's a very small fraction. And then when you get into Luke, in the middle of Luke chapter 9, chapter 10, then Jesus sends out these 12 with just a little bit of instruction and says, now I want you to go and do as I've done. And then, no, no, wait a second. I, I need a 10-week course. You, you didn't give me enough information. You didn't give me enough training. I'm, I'm not prepared. Jesus knew they weren't prepared in their own minds, but they were prepared prepared through the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you read through that, guess what happens? They go out and they start performing miracles. They start casting out demons. And they come back and say, Jesus, you wouldn't believe what happened. He's all, I get it, guys. That's why I sent you. Because you can't learn with me just telling you. You have to learn by doing. So teaching people to obey means that we have to be willing to take action and do something. You and I learn by doing. We don't just learn by sitting in a classroom. Everything that you and I learn to do, we only fully learn to become proficient in it when we actually did it. Anybody recall what it was like to learn how to drive? So today, you go online, you can take a class. It takes you maybe a week or two if you're fast, and you get your driver's ed certificate, and then you can go take your permit test. So you have this short little window of instruction where you're sitting in a computer screen or you're sitting in a classroom. Then, from the moment you get your permit, you have six Minimum six months of doing what? Getting behind the wheel with a parent or a guardian and driving before you can walk into the DMV and say, I want to take my driver's test. Why do you think that we do that? Because sitting in front of a computer for a week or two doesn't give you the right or the the ability to drive a car. Correct? We all know that. Then why do we apply the same thing to our faith? We just need more classes. We just need more biblical education. You and I really know the scriptures when we live them out. They have meaning when you go, oh, that's what Jesus meant when he said this, because now I see it happening because I've taken a step of action in my life. That's what God is calling us to. And that's why moving this direction makes us understand this is kind of the part two. The second avenue of community groups is not only discipleship, but the ultimate outcome of discipleship is mission. It's gathering together to encourage and to pray and to challenge each other and engage the scriptures, but then it's going out to live on mission with people in our community. It's to actually live out the things that we are learning, not just talk about them and think about them, because that's when we actually grasp them. And there's a bond that happens when you and I get together with somebody else and we step outside of our comfort zone. We go serve people that maybe we don't know or we don't understand or we try to reach out with people. Anybody ever been on a mission trip in your life? Anybody ever recall getting together with a bunch of strangers? Maybe you don't know. Maybe you don't even like them at the beginning of the trip. Two weeks later, you think you can't live without them. Why? Because there's a bond that happens when you and I go outside of ourselves. And that doesn't mean that you and I have to go to the other side of the world for that to happen. All we have to do is cross the street. Live that out. 
So we talked about laundry love is a great opportunity within a community group. 10 to 15 people who are not only growing together, but then they show up every month and they care for people and care for the needs of people in the community. That's the outcome. How do you know if you're a disciple? You come to church. No. You read your Bible. No. You know you're a disciple when you begin to live out what it means to be a disciple. And the ultimate outcome of discipleship is not moral behavior. That's a byproduct. It's mission. Because the Holy Spirit's gotten a hold of you and now you're living out what God purposed for your life. Which leads to two more things. The sixth commitment is a commitment to embracing God's power and presence. So Jesus goes on in verse 20 and he says, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, if you read this in the context, you start scratching your head. So Jesus, we know as we read through scripture, Jesus is in in just not too long after this, he's going to go back to heaven. But he's saying to, to this group gathered there, but I will be with you always to the very end. I won't leave you, I won't forsake you. How can he say that when he's about to leave? Because he tells them that he's promised them the Holy Spirit. His power and his presence that will come and live inside of them. So even though they don't see him walking the planet, they still have God's presence in them. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And that's important to embrace because what God's calling you and I to do is way beyond what we can do. It's a God thing. It's God's power through us that has to happen. So Jesus says that for you and I. And the commitment that we have to make is that we have to live out this reality. That my life, I know when I'm following Jesus, I know when I'm doing what I'm supposed to, I know when I'm on mission, when ultimately what my life looks like requires God. If your life doesn't require God, then we have to take a step back and say, if I can live all with under my own power and my own ability, and I really don't have a category for needing God, then maybe I'm struggling with following Jesus. Because Jesus will always lead me beyond myself. But let me just, for a moment, let me just talk about the importance of this in our own understanding of what this means. So we are a four-square church. Four-square is a part of a greater family that is considered Pentecostal. And we believe in being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, I want you to know, as I say that, I can guarantee, I'm not a mind reader, but most of us are falling into one of two camps. One camp is, yes, we're Pentecostal. In fact, we're not Pentecostal enough. We're not excited enough. We don't yell enough. We don't speak in tongues enough. We don't swing from the chandeliers, even though there aren't any in the building. Yeah, you're right, Pastor John, we need to be more Pentecostal. And then we swing to the other side was like, oh my goodness, he's going to talk about that weird stuff. Speaking in tongues and getting all excited and weird things happening. And some of you are like, you know, you're fastening your seatbelts. Like, where are we going? I don't know if I like this. And let me just take a step back for a moment. Both of those camps miss the point. Because when Jesus gets in in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus says, wait. And you wait because... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you so you can have really cool-looking services where people do crazy things. It doesn't say that, by the way. Some of you are thinking, it does? It's not in my Bible. No, he says you will receive power to be my witnesses. Why is the Holy Spirit given? It's not given so that we can have this cool, goosebump kind of reality. Although that happens. It's given so that we can give ourselves away through God's power. Sometimes you get, oh, we need to have the gifts of the Spirit. Yes, we have the gifts of the Spirit, but the gifts of the Spirit are given not for us. In fact, when the gifts of the Spirit were in operation in a church gathering, you know what context we have for understanding that? We have 1 Corinthians 14. 
And what is Paul doing in 1 Corinthians 14? He's telling the Corinthians, you guys missed it. You're doing it wrong. Your focus is in the wrong place. Should we speak in tongues if you're filled with the Holy Spirit? Sure. Sure, there's a gift that God may give you. But that's not the point. That's a byproduct. The point is the power that God gives you and I to live out his mission. And that will include gifts that God wants to give us. But the gifts are not given so the church could hog them and make it about us. The, church, the, the gifts were given. The power of God was given for the world. How do we know this? Read through the book of Acts and look at every single miracle that you see in there. When the power of God shows up in the book of Acts, this is what's crazy. You can document 40 miracles in the book of Acts. 40. Did you know 39 of them happened outside of a synagogue or temple? They didn't happen in a church service. They happened where? On the street. When God's people were living under God's power for God's mission, guess what? God shows up on the street. He doesn't wait for us to have a gathering so he can show up. Why? Because he's living out on the street through the power of the Holy Spirit. God dwells on the streets of Simi Valley. Do you believe that? He does. When we get here, by the way, we never have to welcome God's presence because God's presence through the power of the Holy Spirit is always where his people are at. And it doesn't just happen at church. It happens wherever we are. It's the power of the Holy Spirit through us. So what does that mean for us? It means that, again, we do not exist for ourselves and the end all is not our gatherings on Sunday morning or this destination of a building. This is not it. The building is a means to God's end. Not the end. So let me just give you a few minutes of update on our building process, okay? Because what we're in the process of doing is becoming a church that is not about gathering, but is about scattering. Therefore, we're in the right size process, which is what? Finding a church facility that meets our needs so that it facilitates what we need to do, but it doesn't own us or control us. It doesn't confine us and say, this is what you can and cannot do financially. So we're in the process of doing that. I've told you. This building costs us, without doing anything extra, this building costs us $30,000 a month. That's crazy. And that includes lease payment and maintenance staff and all those things and then utilities and all the stuff that goes in. That's a lot of money. So we've been saying, God, where do you want us to go? So last time I gave an update, I talked about Apollo High School, maybe meeting there, and that's still something that could be a possibility. But in the process, as we're seeking and praying, and even our broker, he's looking everywhere... We came across a few weeks ago a building that's for sale. And this is what's crazy. We actually might be able to buy a building. Now, I'll give you all the details, but let me give you just a quick snapshot, okay? There's a building over off of Tapo Street in L.A., right behind the public storage. It's a 22,000-square-foot building. Currently, a portion of it's being used by a tenant that has another five years on a lease that is bringing in $10,000 of income a month. So with that and then the space that we would have to fit into, it's much smaller... If you take that and then you look at the, the, the finances of compared to what we're in in this building and what we could be in that building with offset, with loan, everything, we run all the numbers. This is what's crazy. We could drop our monthly output for building to get this $2,500 a month and we'd be buying it. That's what's crazy because we have rental income to offset it. And what's crazy is, this, this, I've told you, this building... We have put $6 million just in lease payments alone in the last 20 years. We would have owned this building twice over. That's why it's almost making more sense for us to buy. Here's the catch, and you'll hear more about this. For us to get into that building is going to require us raise another two to $300,000 in the next six months. 
But that gets us in the door where it reduces all of our costs so that we get to the point where, guess what we get to do? We get to fund mission, not maintenance. We get to fund God's purpose in our community, not all the requirements of a building, because now we'll actually own a building that we can tell what it's supposed to do for us, not it tell us what we're doing. So you'll hear about that, because I'm going to ask you to make pledges for the next six months of what you can give. I'm telling you, you've been generous. We have 90000 There's been some amazing gifts and generosity towards right size. But start thinking about it now. What were you going to spend this year that maybe you can spend next year? What, are you, what were you planning on doing with your tax return that maybe you can wait till next year? So we can invest and get in this. We've got our district on our side. They're going to try to help fund us. Foursquare's behind this. And so we're working towards this. We're forming a, a proposal to give to the owner this week. So be praying about this. Because this would be amazing. Because after the first five years, we could expand to the full 22,000 square feet and still be owning the building that we're in. So this is, again, this is a God thing. We, I mean, we've been looking and looking and looking, and finally this came up on the radar. So please be praying, praying about God's favor, praying about God releasing resources through you. And we'll talk more about that in the weeks ahead. And then the final thing, the final thing of the final commitment God's calling us to make this year is to make a shift in our hearts. It's a commitment to people, not programs. A shift in in the understanding. So when Jesus lays out the Great Commission and he demonstrates for you and I what it means to make disciples, he always did it in a relationship, one-on-one context with somebody. It's very personal. He didn't create programs and systems for people to go through. He actually invested in people's lives. That's why Jesus was effective with 12, and that's why you and I are here today. Let's just say it. He was effective with 11. He even lost one in the way, didn't he? But because he was effective in what? Investing in them, in people. You and I have the church today. You and I get to know who Jesus is today. So the same thing is true for you and I, is this shift that so many times in our minds we think, oh, I just we need to create another program because we need to address this need. Or we need to create a program because people like this are coming to our church. What if people found their way into community groups and sat in a living room and had diverse challenges and problems but care enough for each other to invest in that person? See, it's the shift of going from we need to have something for everyone to just doing a few things really well. It's a shift again for us to stay focused on making disciples. Life on life. Let me just give you this. I've seen this and read about it numerous times. It gives us a good grasp of what, how, how tangible the Great Commission is to completing in our life. This is what's crazy. We think, oh man, that's impossible. I mean, how many people don't know Jesus? And just, this is just, if you do the math, this is the way it works out. Let's just say you are the only Christian in the whole world. Okay, which is not true, but let's just pretend for a moment, okay? And you make a commitment to make disciples, but all you can do, and this is it, you can make one disciple a year. You help them to understand who Jesus is, you lead them to the Lord, you help them know what it means to follow Jesus, and you do that. And you can do that every year. In fact, in every disciple you make, they can, they can bring one person to the Lord and make one disciple a year. So if you start that out and you do that this year, so this year you make a disciple, next year you make a disciple, and the person you've discipled makes a disciple, and you do that, how long do you think it would, would take to reach the entire world? You'd be surprised. 34 years. That's it. 34 years. For most of us, that's our lifetime. That's within our lifetime. That's 34 relationships that you and I have to have in our lifetime in order to fulfill the Great Commission. You and I have right now, all of us in this room have more than 34 relationships. Let's just make it even better. How about, what if there was two? Just you and the person sitting next to you, you're the only Christians in all the world, 
And you make a commitment that you're going to make two disciples every year in your life. So you start off, the two become what? When you, one person makes two, the other person makes two. Now there's, what, six of you. And then you just keep going, going. And every year, every person who's come to Jesus makes two more disciples. You know how long it would take and ultimately to reach all the world and, and fulfill the Great Commission? Ready? 22 years. That's it. That's 44 relationships. Let's just even get crazy and say there's three Christians. Okay, I know this is really radical. Three Christians. You do the same thing. You lead three people to the Lord and disciple three people every single year. You know how long it takes to fulfill the Great Commission? 17 years. Now, here's the crazy thing. You know how many Christians are on the planet right now? Over a billion. One in, at least one in seven people in our world are Christians. You know what that means? We could fulfill the Great Commission next week. It is. If we would get back to what? Disciple-making is about relationship. Disciple-making is about people. Disciple-making is about building relationship with people around you and helping them understand they need to be reconciled back to God through Jesus. That's what it looks like. So let me close with this, and the worship team will join us for one more song as we'll close the service. Understanding how tangible the Great Commission is. There's a shift that God is walking us through. We are in the shift from going one-on-many to one-on-one. This is important. New Hope Christian Fellowship does not revolve around one personality. New Hope is made up of people. And our job at New Hope is not to get people to come to church so the pastor can save them. Our job and my job is to release you to fulfill the Great Commission in our community. And if we're not doing that, then that's my fault. And I need you to understand that because not just New Hope, but historically the church has been about one personality. How good a speaker is the pastor? How friendly is he? How good is he doing what he's doing? Because then the church rises and falls on one personality. The church does rise on one personality. And you know who that person is? Jesus Christ. Not John Amstutz. Thank Jesus for that. Man. Understand that. You are just as qualified to help disciple somebody as I am. And that's what we want to become as a church. It's a shift. It's a shift from come and see the spectacular thing we can do to go and share the amazing thing God can do in your life right where you're at. It's a shift for us. It's moving again. You're going to hear this over and over again. It's moving from the the jack-in-the-box mentality to the in-and-out mentality. You're going to keep hearing it. Jack-in-the-box does a lot of things really crappy, okay? And then in-and-out does a few things really well. Yeah, I just said crappy, okay? It's a Hebrew word, I think. I don't know. Anyway... But I'm wanting you to get get the the understanding that we are not going to try to do everything and be all things to all people. We're going to focus on discipleship, and that's the primary focus. So we'll do a few things really, really well. It's kind of funny. Tony Eske brought me like a bag of like 10 jack-in-the-box tacos a couple weeks ago and tried to get me to eat them. And I refused. Thank goodness for Josh Denton. He helped me out and bailed it out and ate them for me. But just so you understand, it's this, this focus that we have to have. And that's why so many times you go, oh, that, I wish we had this and wish we had that. Wait, let's ask the question, are we making disciples? That's the most important question. Are we making disciples of our kids? Are we making disciples of our youth? Are we making disciples of our adults? That is the question that we have to answer. That's the one we'll be accountable before the Lord for. And this is a shift from the past to the future. Understand this, and you have to grasp this. God is not remodeling new hope. 
He's reinventing it. You need to hear that. John Amstutz is not reinventing new hope. I didn't come with this great strategy and plan. We are simply responding to what God is saying to us. We're looking at the scriptures. Remember, the compass never changes. The mandate never changes. And saying, God, how do we live that out in our context? So we're trying our best to do that. But we're not going back to anything. We're not trying to restore anything. We're simply moving forward and letting God take the shape, make this church take the shape He wants it to take the shape of. Why? Because new hope is His church. He is the Lord of the church. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank You. We thank You for our salvation, that You called us to be a part of Your family that you've forgiven us for our sin and our failure. We are so grateful for that. But, Lord, the bigger thing is that you've called us not only to escape the judgment of hell and death, but you've called us to live for you and to sacrifice ourselves for you because there's a bigger issue here. It's not, Lord, we know, just avoiding the bad stuff. But, Lord, it's embracing you so that someday... Someday, Lord, there will be not only us, but there will be people standing around the throne worshiping you because we were willing to lay down our lives and follow you. So, Lord Jesus, in this new year, I ask that you would help us, that you would convict us, that you would push us forward, that you would infuse your Spirit's power in us to accomplish your purpose for us, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would give us courage, I pray that you would give us strength. I pray you would give us faith that has action, that we believe so much in what you are doing and what you've said, that we've taken you seriously, that we live this out and we are willing to risk and we're willing to encounter danger and ridicule and whatever comes our way, knowing, Lord Jesus, we want to make disciples. We want to glorify you. We want people to know you, Lord Jesus. Lord, would you do that in us this year? In your name, amen.